God is life. And the world he created reflects that. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 36, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. The Bible teaches that God is just a fountain. Life just pours out from him. In Acts chapter 17, Paul speaking in Athens at the Areopagus, he he tells his hearers, he says, that God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In him we live and move and have our being. Every breath that we take, every breath even that the unbeliever takes, is only possible because the Holy Spirit of the living God is giving us life at every moment, every time we breathe in and we breathe out. God is life. God is not just any kind of life. God is eternal and infinite and super abundant life, and that just is so clear in the world that he made. You read there in the first chapters of Genesis before the fall, and we see a world that is just teeming with life. The oceans teeming with masses of all kinds of fish and marine animals. The air just teeming with all kinds of birds and flying animals of every description. The land full of life of every type. Masses of life. It's just sheer glory that we read of in the creation account. And in the midst of all this great, massive explosion of life that happens in the creation week. In the middle of all that, there's a garden with one man and one woman. And they represent the most precious life in all of the creation, human life. A special life built in such a way as to reflect the the very image of the creator in a most sublime way. And it's fascinating that the creator did not create the world teeming with masses of humanity. But he ordained that the world would be filled in the way of faithful obedience, in the way of rejoicing in pure, holy love between a husband and a wife, and the incredible joy of seeing the fruit of that love in the birth of sweet, beautiful, precious little babies. And that that would happen over and over and over again as mankind obeyed the Creator's command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Live, live, live. That's what God told them. Produce life. Be fruitful. Produce life. Multiply. Produce life. Fill the earth. That's what we were supposed to do. But we didn't, did we? And the children remember what the Lord told Adam and Eve in the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. That's the opposite. 
That's the opposite of everything that God made the world to be. Don't go the wrong way. Because you'll be cut off from God. And when you're cut off from God, you're cut off from the source of life. And when you're cut off from the source of life, you know what that looks like. We all know what that looks like. We just have to look around us in this broken and fallen world. It's a world of darkness, a world of disease, a world of death. And fallen man figures it out real quick, don't they? Because it's only the first generation after the fall where we find Cain snuffing out his brother Abel's life. And it gets worse. And it gets worse until the time of the flood. When violence, wickedness, hatred, death dealing is so rampant on the earth that God ordains that the earth must undergo a great washing, a great cleansing. He undoes, as it were, the creation. Everything goes back to the beginning. It's underwater. And then after, when the flood has happened and when the ark has landed on the mountain and when it's time to begin again, then look at what God tells Noah and his family. Turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and you'll see there what God ordains in this new beginning. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, produce life, and multiply, produce life, and fill the earth, produce life. That's a repetition of what the command was at the beginning. Get it right this time, human beings. Get it right this time. But then look what happens. Look at verse 7. Because it's not just three times. But look at verse 7. He says again to Noah, And you, be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. You know, when, when God repeats something in the Scripture, when God repeats, says something twice, we want to pay attention. Or when God says something once, we want to pay attention. When he says it twice, all the more, he's emphasizing something. When God says something three times, we want to pay a lot of attention. God is holy, holy, holy. Some of the most fundamental truths of Scripture are repeated three times. In Genesis chapter 9, any of the children count how many times? Verse 1 or verse 2 there, verse 1, it's three times. And then in verse 7, it's four times for a total of seven times. The, the number of fullness. You think God's making a point here? The number of fullness, seven times. I want you to live. I want you to produce life. I want you to promote and to love life. And in that context, of re-establishing what creation is for. In that context, God speaks those words in chapter 9, verse 5. He says, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. 
From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What does this mean? It means that murder is an act of les majesté. An act of the highest treason. The world full of life most glorifies the God of life. And to bring about the deliberate death of a human, the crown of creation, the image of God, is to work against the very purpose of God. It is to blaspheme God. It is to stand against and defy everything that God stands for. It is to detract from the glory of the Creator. Every death of every human being is one more score for the enemy. And God says, don't you be putting more points on the enemy's scoreboard. To take A human life is a most horrifying sin. It is to stand with the enemy. It is to work in concert with the kingdom of darkness, the culture of death. The kingdom of darkness wants less life and more death. And every human being, even those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, have built into them a sense of the horror of the sin of taking human life. What does the Proverbs say? Proverbs 28, 17, if one is burdened with the blood of another, he will be a fugitive until death. Let no one help him. The guilt of taking human life is a crushing guilt which will, in some way or another, afflict the sinner for his or her entire life. Well, hopefully, most of us have never gotten even near to being so angry or violent that we've been tempted to or had an opportunity to take a human life. What kind of applications can we draw for us as the Holy Spirit puts before us the commandment this afternoon? Well, one of the things we need to consider in the light of Scripture's teaching on this commandment is that Christians do not glorify the taking of human life in any way. Sometimes those who are more conservative in their politics, they like to be very patriotic and militaristic And sometimes, especially men and and boys, love to talk about war and, and love to glory in it. Whether it's glorying in wars, real wars that have happened in history, or perhaps glorying in virtual wars and online computer games. But either way, it is not something which is acceptable or appropriate for a child of God to delight in and to celebrate and to glorify 
the taking of human life. Whether it's in war, whether it's in war games and first-person shooters, or whether it's in celebrating when, when the police are forced to use lethal force against uh, an evildoer, or when a citizen has to defend his life or his family's life by putting to death an attacker, then in some of these cases, there is a, a certain, and certain times, there is a legitimate taking of human life. In accordance, in accordance with Romans chapter 13, the, the government bears the sword, as we see there in the catechism at the end of our first question and answer. But there's a difference between recognizing and accepting legitimate taking of human life under the authority that God gives to the government as his ministers and celebrating it. It's never something that believers consider cool or wonderful or something to celebrate. It's a terrible thing that a human life is taken. Even if the person who died is a, is a terrible person, they're still created in the image of God. And it is still a terrible thing that there is less life, not more. And it is a terrible thing that the evildoer who has died now no longer has the chance to hear the gospel, to repent, and to live. Christians reflect the image of our Savior. And our Savior tells us clearly that he does not desire the death of the sinner, but that he turn and repent and live. And so that's our attitude as well. So Christians don't glorify the taking of life. And that means we don't encourage our children to play games where gratuitous violence is the main thing. It's one thing to play a historic game or some kind of game which uh, reflects a legitimate conflict or, or battle between good and evil. But there are some games which just give to sinners what they're looking for, just to glory in gore, to glory in violence, to glory in gratuitous taking of life. And that is something which Christians say no to. Christians do not deliberately take human life. We always choose life. This is the character of our God. This is the character of our Savior. He came so that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so Christians will not deliberately take the life of other persons, even if they, they may be somewhat inconvenient to us. We will not kill our elderly. We will not destroy our unborn. We value life even when taking care of life, is difficult or painful. We want more, not less life. God gives life, and only God has the right to take life. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 104. You take your spirit from them, they turn back to dust and go back into the ground. So Christians don't glorify the taking of life. They do not deliberately end human life in any form or any shape. Christians celebrate life. Christians embrace the cultural mandate given to Adam and Eve in the garden and repeated seven times to Noah and his sons. Christians love life. Christians love children. And that means, amongst many other things, 
that Christians do not deliberately prevent the birth of children unless absolutely necessary. We don't celebrate destroying life, nor do we celebrate suppressing life. If God doesn't give children to our marriage or if we're single, then we prayerfully look for other ways in which we can promote life and cultivate life and enrich life. And so we're all involved, both the married with children, the married without children, and the singles. We celebrate life in the place and station that God has given us. And then Christians taught by the Spirit to love life. Don't just celebrate it, but we promote it in every way. It's not enough for us to, to stop short of actually physically murdering But anything, in any way, which leads to hurting or destroying life, we despise and we reject. So, children of God are careful with our thoughts. We're careful with our words. We're careful with our gestures. We're careful with our deeds. Because in no way, shape, or form do we want to think or say or do anything which would tend to hurt or harm another human being or another living being. We don't celebrate cruelty. We don't celebrate anything which diminishes life. Now, some may know the words of that little children's ditty, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And we may think to ourselves, well, the, command, the, the, the catechism is saying, well, we are not to dishonor, hate, injure, kill my neighbor by thoughts or, or words. But can words really be so hurtful? Can they come to the point of really damaging someone else? I thought, I thought words can't hurt me. Isn't that what the ditty says? I think many of us know that it's not true, right? I think many of us know by a horrible experience, either by having committed this sin or having had it committed against us, that words can be very hurtful, that words can tend to bring pain and destruction and ruin life and even bring death. And I think many of us remember that terrible example just a few years ago, in, in I think it was in BC, where that young girl, Amanda Todd, committed suicide because of online bullying. So she was murdered. Her life was taken from her by hateful, unkind thoughts and words and gestures and deeds which brought her to a place where she thought that no one in the world loved her and that her life was not worth living. And so she took it. And so thoughts and words and gestures can kill, literally. And so as God's children, we hate those hateful things. We say no to them. And when we see others hurting people with words or thoughts or gestures with unkindness, then we step into the breach and we say, stop. That's what we do, right, children, at school? If somebody's being unkind or if somebody's bullying someone else, then what does God call you to do? God calls you to live and to act as his child, a child of God. You are a prince of the royal 
kingdom of God. You are a princess belonging to the great king. And you must stand up for who he is and what he represents. And when you see someone being unkind and being hurtful and putting someone down, then you stand with that person and you say, stop. If you can't speak something kind, then go away. The fact is, is that when people are being bullied and mistreated, if just one person stands up next to them, that often can dissipate very quickly all of those horrid things that are happening. And so that's what God calls us to do and calls us to be. Christians love life. We promote life in every way. And Christians taught by the Spirit to love life also take good care of our own lives. Turn to Romans 13 for a moment. Romans 13, 11 to 14. In Romans 13, verse 11, the apostle describes for us what life is like without God. Romans 13, 11, besides this, you know the time that the, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And now, now pay attention to how he describes a life without God. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The way of life of the wicked is destructive for their minds and for their souls and for their bodies. As they party all night, as they drink and abuse substances, as they indulge in dangerous sexual activities outside of marriage, falling to, to bed with whomever they meet, that kind of a lifestyle brings with it all kinds of terrible consequences for health, not just spiritual health, but also physical health. And so Christians taught by the Spirit to love life, we say no to that whole lifestyle of darkness and everything that comes with it. And we say yes to a lifestyle which has a holy rhythm of hard work and deep rest and good nutrition and healthy activities and priorities and lifestyle. The way of the kingdom of darkness, the way of the flesh, is to use others and to use yourself up until all is used up and destroyed. Live, live life to the fullest. Suck the marrow out of life, they say. Sin to the fullest. And then you just fall into the grave exhausted and you've managed to have your few moments of happiness. But the Christian knows a far different way of living. A life which is lived in the power, the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, which already in this world now is the beginning of tasting the life that never ends. A part of this living to the max that the world tries to sell us 
is the idea that you push yourself to the limits with pleasure and with drugs and with unsafe sexual practices or with extreme activities. You throw caution to the winds. You, you live dangerously. YOLO, you only live once. At least you die having fun. But compare that foolishness to the example of our Savior. We saw that when we heard the gospel from Matthew chapter 4, when the, the devil brought him to that high place on the wall of the temple, looking over the valley below, and challenged him to throw himself down. And the Lord Jesus says, that's not the way it is. That's not the way the children of God treat their health, their safety, and their lives. We do not put God to the test. To neglect self-care, to endanger your life and your health, is to defy God and to put him to the test. And that is never a good idea. Now, the, the government, which according to the fifth commandment is a minister of God, which bears the sword to prevent the most egregious breaking of this command, the government's there to prevent and to punish murder. But the sixth commandment is, is more than just forbidding the act of murder. And we see that in question answer 106. It's more than just forbidding the act of murder. The act of Murder in biblical terms is the final poisonous flowering of a whole organic bunch of sins. Murder, we confess from the scripture, is rooted in something. It's rooted in, in envy, in hatred, in anger, in desire of revenge. And so let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. We'll read a few verses from there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 to 15. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, pay close attention to verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What does the scripture say? To live, to have life, is to love. To love God. To love your neighbor to love righteousness, to love God's law. Death is hating God. Death is hating your brother. Death is loving sin. Death is hating God's law. And what do we read from Deuteronomy chapter 30? Moses told the people, he said, listen, I've put God's law, God's good and holy law before you. Now you need to make a choice. Choose life or choose death. That's the choice, that stark choice that's put before you. Choose life or choose death. Well, as we look at our lives, we sometimes wonder, don't we? Can we really do that? Can we choose life? We, we look at our children. And from 
I don't know how it is in your house, but sometimes I wonder. You see children in the morning, just woken up, and sometimes they're arguing from the get-go, and they're fighting, and there are cutting words, and there's anger, and there's envy, and there's selfishness, and perhaps a, a little shove and a desire for revenge. I'll get you back, and that's how the day begins sometimes, and that's how it goes through the whole day, and that's how it ends sometimes. And we as parents are sometimes pulling our hair out, or, our, or as, as teachers. Sometimes we wonder, wow, why are the kids like this? Why do they have to be like this? And then we look at the mirror. And when we look in the mirror, we realize that we're not that different, are we, as adults? Yeah, we're really good at faking it. We're really good at hiding it. We're a lot better than our kids at putting a mask on. But you rip the mask off, and sometimes the mask slips, doesn't it? When we're a little irritated, where we're hungry, or when we're irritated and we don't have a lot of self-control, sometimes the mask slips. And how much envy and hatred and anger and desire of revenge is not in my own heart? How much have I not dishonored and hated and injured my neighbor by thoughts, words, gestures, and even deeds? And how careless have I not been with my own life and my own health? And if we meditate upon the commandment, then we realize that there's a lot in this commandment which exposes our guilt. And maybe at this point, as we reflect on the commandment, maybe at this point, guilt may even oppress us. I have hurt people in my life. Maybe it's trash talking on the internet. That's real easy to do, isn't it? After about three or four comments, then people are calling each other's names and after about five or six comments, they're invoking Nazis and Hitler, and people love to trash each other. And, and there we are as God's people on the internet. And before you know it, there we are, spiraling down with the rest of them, hurting people, thinking ill of them, speaking ill of them, hating people, being angry with people, maybe even for a long time, gossiping about people wishing them ill, sometimes even people close to me, sometimes my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe there are worse things that are oppressing your heart at this moment, whether you're here or whether you're watching online. Maybe you have even hated a life within you and you've wished harm on your little unborn child. Maybe you've actually done it. Maybe you've destroyed a life within you. I think the more that we stand before the mirror of the sixth commandment, the more we evaluate ourselves in the light of God's holy law, the more crushing the guilt. Now, how are we supposed to deal with this? Where does, this, where does this bring us? Well, what did we see here this morning? We saw the table set. We saw the bread. We saw the wine. 
Jesus said to us this morning, come, eat, drink, remember, believe. Believe what? Believe that it is done, it is finished, it is paid, it is gone, it is dealt with, it is washed away. All of our miserable, shameful brokenness, also with respect to the sixth commandment, is all gone. God doesn't see it. He has thrown those sins into the depth of the sea. They cannot be retrieved. He has separated those sins from us as far as the east is from the west. As far as you can imagine. This morning, Jesus came to us in the supper and in the word preached. And he reminded us, as he reminds us this afternoon again, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I came that you might have life and that you might have it in abundance. That's the gospel. The gospel that every sinner can hold on to. The gospel that in Christ I keep the sixth commandment. That in Christ, I am no life destroyer. That in Christ, by the power of the Spirit of Christ, I am a lover of life. And it doesn't matter how bad, how shameful, how guilty my history. In Christ, I am a perfect lover of life. That's the good news. So, child of God, go from here in the power of the Spirit of Christ and live life to the fullest. Be full of life. Revel in life. May the life of the kingdom to come fill you and transform you and overflow from you. May everyone whom you meet, everywhere you go, May you be a life bringer. When you walk into a room somewhere at work, at school, in the community, when you walk in, may you not drag with you the stench of death, but rather the sweet aroma of life in Christ, in your words, in your thoughts, in your demeanor, in your actions. And in the power of the Spirit, May you so love life that you are known for your patience and your peace and your gentleness and your mercy and your friendliness. May it be said of us that when people speak to us and interact with us and deal with us, that they feel that they have been in the presence of Christ himself. The way, the truth, and the life. That's what the Holy Spirit promises to us. Patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, friendliness, Christ, likeness in our thoughts, in our demeanor, in our internet conversations, 
in our dealings with our neighbors and our co-workers, in our comments about other drivers on the road. May our children see that too, brothers and sisters. May other people around us see that, that we are for life, that we are full of life, that we choose life, that we love life because Christ loved us and because we love Christ. Amen.